0: You can take your Bibles and turn to Romans uh, chapter seven to continue our um, our series on relationships. Um, today, today we're looking at relating to those who are struggling. We'll talk more specifically about that in a minute. Um, we are uh, Our normal practice here is to preach exegetically through books of the Bible, and so we're kind of taking a break from that to touch on some some topical things here, but we'll be getting back uh, to that practice here soon. Uh, starting in December, we'll be uh, kicking off a series in the Gospel of John, so we'll do that for Advent, looking at those first few verses there in, in John that uh, talk about the birth of the of the Messiah, and so excited about that, you can be praying as a, as a prepare for for those things which are to come. That'll be a, a long series. I'm looking forward to, to jumping in deep in the Gospel of John with you. All right, as we come to our, our topic today, we, you know, we all struggle with sin, and, and we all face temptations throughout our life. That's something that's common to, to every one of us. Uh, but some of us, our our struggles are distinctive or unique. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, as, you'll see what we mean as we get into this today. But uh, today, my goal is to to hopefully give us some tools, some insight, uh, to help us think through how we as individual Christians and even us as a church collectively can, can love those around us who are facing uh, some maybe unique struggles in their in their pursuit of Christ and walk with, with Christ. So um, with that in mind, let's give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. I'm gonna read Romans chapter seven, verse 15, down through uh, chapter eight, verse two. This is the very word of God. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. It's what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free... In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Father in heaven, we thank you for good news. (laughs) That in the midst of our struggle, that Christ is our Savior. That you aren't waiting for us to get all our I's dotted and our T's crossed, to get everything perfect in our life, so that we'll be worthy of our love. But God, you have come to us, even in the midst of our struggle with sin, even in the midst of our failures with sin. And you've made yourself known to us. Help us to rest in the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that the gospel is the good news that we need. Thank you for for your Son. Holy Spirit, work in us even now. Help us to not just believe the good news, but love others in light of the good news. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Does that passage that we just read unsettle you a bit, that Paul, the great apostle who was radically transformed on the road to Damascus, planted all these great churches, spent his life giving himself away as a missionary, wrote most of our New Testament, that he still struggled with sin even into his life, into his walk with Christ. Even while writing a theological treatise like the letter to the Romans, Paul stops in the middle and just says, guys, the things that I want to do, I can't seem to do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing these things. I mean, surely we should be discouraged that Paul hadn't gotten it together yet, right? I mean, if Paul can't get it together, what hope is there for us? I think instead of that reaction, what we should find is comfort in this. Because if we're being honest, I, I. Aren't we all somewhat comforted by the fact that Paul struggled with sin and temptation? Because we know that we all struggle with sin and temptation throughout our lives. We like good company, right? And Paul gives us hope. If Paul can admit that he struggles with sin and temptation, then maybe it's really okay for me to admit that I also struggle with stuff in my life. Maybe it's good and right That I, therefore, am called to be patient and loving towards all the strugglers around me. Because if Paul struggles, and I struggle, we all struggle, shouldn't we help each other with our struggles? Today we're going to look at what it means to speak the truth in love. And that's our first point, speaking truth in love. And then... Uh, as we speaking the truth in love as we seek friendship with the with the strugglers around us and seek to help and and give hope in the midst of the struggle. And then we're gonna talk about what it means to love people in light of the truth about whatever the struggle might be. So we're gonna talk about speaking the truth in love and then loving people, living out in light of the truth about who we are. And so that's where we're going today. I didn't have the outline done when we printed the the stuff earlier, but that's where we're heading this morning. You know, when we think about the people around us in this world, we could put everyone into one of two categories. Uh, Those who struggle with their sinfulness and are seeking righteousness, they're moving towards Christ in their struggle, or those who don't struggle with their sinfulness, aren't seeking about righteousness, and could care less about Jesus and what God might say about their struggles. I I think that's very broad, but but in a sense we all fall into those categories. There are Christians, And there are non-Christians. When we all sin, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian, when he recognizes the sin, repents and believes, runs to Jesus for mercy. And so I hope, you know, as today we're going to talk about those who are struggling with their sin and, and run towards them. You know, when the people around us, though, are living in unrepentant sin, as Christians, we're, we're called to love them enough to speak the truth to them about their eternal consequences of their sin. There are eternal consequences. All of us are made in the image of God. All of us have eternal souls. And our souls are either going to exist together forever with Christ in peace, or they're going to exist forever separated from Christ in torment. There is no in-between. And so we're called, as Christians, to be compassionate and kind towards those around us who are unrepentant of their sin, speaking the truth and love to them that they might hear the good news, repent of their sins, and join us in peace. That's our hope for the world around us. That's our calling to proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth that people might hear. Um, Everyone, the thing that we all have in common is we're all made in the image of God. And that's the reality for everyone that we meet, no matter what particular sins they struggle with or or don't struggle with, or you know, in the sense of those who don't struggle with their sin, they just live in their sin. Uh, my goal today is to help us, is to think about how to love the, the image bearers around us. We're all made in the image of God. We all have worth and value. We all have personhood. And so we're all worthy of love and respect. You know, while the things that we're going to consider could apply to most anyone and most any struggle today, we're going to mainly spend our time today considering those around us who are same-sex attracted. That's going to kind of be the application, and it's going to take us all the way through our whole whole time together today. But there are things, there, hopefully there's principles here about loving people in general that we can apply very, very broadly. You know, there are different ways in which people who are same-sex attracted approach their attractiveness. There are those who, who rejoice in their orientation and seek sexual fulfillment in the same-sex relationship, not caring what God says about who they are or how they live. They're non-Christians, and they live as such, embracing their feelings and their orientation. There are also those who consider themselves Christians, but read Scripture in such a way that they rationalize uh, the Scripture to to the point that they read within that Scripture that God approves of them living in a sexually active same-sex relationship, of course, a right reading of Scripture would show that they're wrong there about God's approval of their friendship. So we have a second category of people. But then there's a third category of people who are same-sex attracted I want us to think maybe a little more deeply about this morning. There, there are people who, while being same-sex attracted, have chosen to be sexually celibate because they're seeking to please God and live for His glory. They're trusting in Christ. that that They're trusting that there are greater pleasures that can that can be found in Christ, then can be found in living out their sinful desires. They recognize it as sin, and they're pursuing righteousness instead of their desires. We all have desires that are sinful, and so I hope that we all understand the struggle, that we all are saying at times no to sinful desires that we think could bring us temporary, momentary pleasure, to find something better in Jesus. And so we're saying that there are those who struggle with this particular sin who are in that same boat with us. Now, for people in the first category there who have no interest in Christ, their sexuality and our relationship to them is not necessarily a primary issue. Because as we build friendships with non-Christians, our goal isn't primarily to get them to stop sinning. Our goal is that they would see the love and beauty of Christ and love Him above all things so that their love for Him and their understanding of His love for them would cause them to stop sinning. Because we can convince everyone around us to stop sinning and yet they never trust in Christ. And that would be a tragedy. I remember Donald Gray Barnhouse saying one time, I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't remember exactly. He says, um, if if in Philadelphia, where he was the pastor there at 10th Prez, he said, if in Philadelphia all the bars closed down, all the red light districts ceased to exist, all the liquor stores closed, all the gambling stopped, and everyone went to church, and no one believed the gospel, the devil would rejoice. That's not our goal. Our goal isn't to see sin stop for sin for that sake, even though we, we may be maybe, maybe a good thing. We may rejoice that someone's getting out of the depravity that they've caught themselves in or the consequences of that. But ultimately, our hope is that people would not just stop sinning, but that they would turn to Jesus. And find life, life everlasting, peace and pleasures forevermore in the Son of Jesus Christ. Um, You know, for those who believe that God approves of their sinful acts, we would have a different but, but still loving and compassionate approach. Not that there is any cookie cutter approach to relationships, they're all different. And so we need to keep that in mind always. But but in the case of someone who believes that God approves of, in this case, their homosexual acts, you know, we would be wise to patiently and kindly study the scripture with them. Uh, help them see that God considers all sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman to be sinful. And so to do that, we would have to be committing ourselves to a long-term relationship. Understanding uh, that to patiently love someone who's struggling with the relationship between their feelings and what their culture is telling them is good and right, and and the truth of what the Scriptures say, we have to know that in these circumstances we're going to face well-reasoned and persuasive arguments, even though they're faulty. There's a whole genre of books and teachings that, to this end, are seeking to prove that God affirms homosexual activity. We've got to know that as we enter into this, we're having to be learners educate ourselves, even as we seek to to love and serve those whom God's put in our life to build friendships with them. And so we're going to face arguments uh, that our reading of scripture on this subject is not only wrong, but unloving. We need to be ready to speak the truth in love with kindness and patience, marking our steps all along this way. Because the culture that we live in calls us bigoted and unloving because of our views on on sexuality and, and other things, but primarily that. And so our You know, the culture has decided that tolerance is the greatest of all virtues. I've got a friend who's a a pastor, um, a guy named Scott Puckett, who says this. He said, tolerance values a relationship over truth. Grace values truthful relationships. We want to be people of grace. Who are willing to enter into truthful, loving, kind, compassionate relationships. With the people around us. We want to see people come to know the Savior. But the main topic that I want to address this morning is the topic of welcoming and loving those who are seeking to be faithful in Christ, the repentant of their sins, pursuing holiness. But there exists and remains within them a desire for romantic and sexual relationship with a same-sex partner. You know, this is a there's a there's a massive conversation, often arguments going on within the the Christian culture, the church, the evangelical world, if we can even still use that term, um, around us, the conservative Bible-believing Christian church right now about how to view and relate to those who struggle uh, in this particular way. There's recently a conference that was held in our circles where a a group of same-sex attracted Christians gathered to consider how they can encourage one another towards faithfulness in Christ. That was their goal. That was their stated goal. This is a gathering of people who have acknowledged that it would be sinful to live out their sexual desires. Therefore, they've chosen to be celibate in order to honor Christ. And at this conference, I kept up with some of it. I read thoughts in the material. I read the reviews. I've listened to a couple of the talks. You know, I'll admit that there are things that were said and done at this conference that I could probably find problematic, that I do find problematic. For example, some same-sex attracted Christians refer to themselves as gay Christians. I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that it's good to kind of identify as a Christian by your sin, by your primary sin struggle. But here's what's happened in light of that. People who have been in sort of antagonistic towards them have come along and they've found something like that that they don't agree with. Maybe even being nitpicky at times. I don't know and they found something that was said at this conference or amongst this movement that was wrong, maybe could have been said better or differently or whatnot, and instead of saying, hey can we have a conversation about this, can we maybe talk about how to say this differently or say, what, what, ask a question, maybe what do you mean when you say this? What they've done is they've said, well if that's the term you're going to use you're wrong and therefore I'm putting up a wall and we're not gonna have a conversation about this till you change. That is not the definition of loving kindness. That is not gracious and compassionate and merciful. I understand that, hey, you've got an honest reason here to be concerned maybe about this thing. But are we willing to step into someone's life and say, hey, can we talk about this? Can you help me understand? Can I help you understand why I think this might be a problem? We do that with people every day in every part of our lives. But yet it seems that on this issue and this arena and this occasion, There's been many, many people who are unwilling to be gracious because this sin is so controversial because these attractions are so divisive in our understanding of them. And I think my call for us today is to think how can we be gracious and merciful and kind on some of these things? Because my inclination is to be understanding. We're in a new place in the history of the church and our culture. Where people feel the freedom, and I think this is because of the conversations going on in broader culture, the laws that have changed in larger culture, whether we agree with them or disagree with them, we it's opened up the door for people to walk out of the closet, so to speak, and say, this is my struggle. And so the question is, as people walk out of the shadows, how's the church going to respond to them? Particularly those who say, I trust in Christ, but I still struggle with same sets of traction. How do we love those who struggle? How do we approach them? The good thing is that is happening within this movement is that people who are in the midst of a real struggle or the real desires are actually finding help with their pursuit of holiness. They're no longer sort of in the closet struggling alone. So even if I have some problems with their terminology, I want to stand arm in arm with people who are seeking faithfulness. I, who need, won't help in their pursuit of holiness. I want to ask how I can help, not lob grenades at my brothers and sisters in Christ who may not have all their semantics worked out perfectly because you know what, neither do I. I say things all the time that I regret how I said them or what they did. And you love me and are gracious with me when I make mistakes. Some of you ask me about it, some of you just go, well you sure didn't mean it. No, some of you may, uh, may have led some of you into error, I hope not. But there's grace with me. Can we not extend that grace to, those, to others, to everyone? I don't, I don't want people condemning me for every semantic or even theological mistake I've ever made. I want to offer the same courtesy and grace to those, those around me. Uh, no matter what they're struggling with as we go. So as we, as we seek to speak the truth and love to those who are struggling with sin and temptation, we need to remember that none of us have arrived. We're all still struggling as we seek to pursue holiness together. So the question that we have to ask, sort of as individuals and as a church, is are we willing to do the hard work of loving people who are honest about their struggles? Because we often show up at church with our put-together faces on, Holy and righteous, impressive. Our Bible's in tow, like we've read them every day this week. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. But we sure want to look like we're ahead of the game, right? But the reality is we're all struggling. We're all strugglers on this path. Are we not all struggling with some sin, some temptation, some failure that we aren't sure that we feel, really feel safe sharing, even at church? And so my hope is that this church and every church, but particularly this church, would be a safe place to admit that we don't have it all together, that we are in need of others to help us fight sin and pursue holiness, because that's true. We need each other. We started this entire sermon series on relationships by talking about how God created us for community. And that doesn't mean that we simply have a need to get together with others for plans and outings, to go to cookouts and play dates and those sorts of things, although those things are great. We also have a need to have others in our lives who know what we struggle with, who are committed to helping us work out our salvation in a way that honors and pleases God. That's the type of community that God has called us to be and to be a part of. And it's a two-way street. We've got to be able to love those who are struggling and admit that we're strugglers. And so we're able to go with each other. We've got to cultivate relationships that help us to love each other in light of the truth about who we are and how we struggle. You now, when the strugglers around us are repentant of their sin and pursuing faithfulness, we don't withdraw because of their messiness. The messiness of their struggle, we, we're to draw close and offer help and friendship in the midst of the struggle. That's what we're called to do And loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We start with humility, remembering all of the things that we continue to struggle with even as we grow in maturity. But what do we do when we long to be faithful to Christ, but that faithfulness is uniquely costly? So that's where the people who are same-sex attracted find themselves. For someone who is same-sex attracted, faithfulness to Christ looks like a lifetime of loneliness. We must help that not become a reality. The church is called to love one another in such a way, to such a degree that the world Outside of the church would look at how we love each other and go, I, I want to know what's the cause of that. Oh, it's Jesus. I want Jesus. Do we do that? The church is called to surround those around us who are lonely. Be, they, be that because of same-sex attraction, because they're just maybe they're heterosexual but not married yet. Maybe they're widows, maybe they're alone, maybe they they live far from home. All these things, God calls us to come around those who are lonely and say, You're part of the family. You're part of us. You're not alone. You're with us in deep, real, meaningful friendship. This is what community looks like. And we surround them with our eyes open to their struggle. Without condemnation, but with mercy and love that doesn't make their particular struggle the focus of the friendship, but it doesn't ignore it even. We don't let it be the elephant in the room we actually bring it to the table and while we hopefully uh, our struggles won't dominate our friendship, we won't be surprised when it comes up. We won't be afraid to ask how's this going, but we'll allow it to be a part of who we are as friends, as family in the church. So let's consider some questions that we might have in, in this scenario. First is, you know, is a struggle with same-sex attraction sinful? Is the very struggle itself sinful? Some have implied that it is. I would say no, because I think we know that temptation is not sinful. That we know that we know this because Jesus was tempted and yet he never sinned. But and so I think temptation to sin, and we're like I said, we're assuming we're talking about people who have acknowledged that that their desires are. Lead to sin. That to be acted out would be sinful. They're resisting that. They're seeking faithfulness to Christ, and so they're resisting a the temptation, and join and join us. But so we acknowledge that because of that, same-sex attraction is a unique struggle. You know, because if a if a heterosexual has a desire for sexual intimacy, that person has a biblical path to pursuing the fulfillment of that desire. That doesn't mean, mean that that desire will be fulfilled. That person may remain single. We don't know. What the, how, that will, how that path will go. But there is hope of fulfillment in a biblical manner. But for the homosexual who desires purity, yet also has a lingering same-sex attraction, there is no biblical pathway to the fulfillment of that desire unless God gives that person the desire for intimacy with someone of the opposite gender. Her sexual intimacy is only rightly expressed within the bounds of a marriage between a man and a woman you know our society treats our sexuality like it is the center defining aspect of our personhood like it defines who we are in so many ways so often in our music and our tv and our culture and our entertainment and all these things the culture is telling us your sexuality defines you but the bible gives a picture of humanity that's multifaceted uh, people who are made in the image of god and even as fallen sinful people, our completeness, our worth, our, those sorts of things, is not defined by how we interact with others sexually, even though that's a part of the whole. It, ultimately, as Christians, and, and well, as humanity, our ultimate, our ultimate definement of our personhood should come in relation to who, how we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. To be whole as a person does not require us to be in a sexual relationship with another person even though that's a good thing that we've talked before that most people will experience in this life, it's not what gives our lives ultimate meaning. Walking in repentance and faith with Christ is the path to ultimate joy and fulfillment. There is no other joy to ultimate fulfillment than submitting to the Lordship of Christ and walking with Him. And so that's what we're all called to do. As Christians, we have to model this reality. You know, we're wrong when we at times when we treat single adults who haven't been married as less than full adults. That's our sin. You know, we're wrong to imply that marriage equals arrival in adulthood. We're wrong to treat those who struggle with same-sex attraction or any other sinful desire as being marred beyond repair. As if their their sinful t- attractions and lust and desires make them less human and it's just not true. We all struggle with sin. We know that God's grace is powerful enough to change the greatest rebel into a new creation who submits joyfully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We know this because the gospel offers hope to every type of person with every struggle and every failing. We have to be willing without hesitation to include people from every walk of life and the life of our church and as full parts of our community as full parts of our lives. We don't get permission to put up barriers between us and people who struggle with specific sins. We're called to, the gospel breaks down barriers and invites us into intimate, growing, loving, kind relationships and friendships, family with people. You know, I've been guilty of making mistakes in areas like this. Just, you know, at times absent-mindedly referring to a fellowship group as the young couples group. When I know, good and well, there's single people who are going to be a part of that group. But just because of the culture I live in, I tend to think in a certain way. And it's wrong and can be hurtful. You can put up barriers For people coming into deeper intimacy and deeper fellowship within the body of believers. When we just, even without malice, make comments that aren't thoughtful and considerate. What are we communicating with our actions and with our words? Are we communicating welcome? Are we communicating, when you get it together, it'll be good for you to join us? No, we all come as sinners who need a community of people to love us. Another question is, what does it mean to be a friend to someone? Well, the Bible defines friendship by laying down our lives, to, to lay down your life for another person, for their good. It often means we have to embrace some sort of uncomfortability. I think I made up a word there uh, to, to cultivate that relationship. It, it may be overlooking some annoying habit or personality trait, forgetting that we likely have those ourselves. We just can't see our own annoying things, right? You know, But for some of us, we may have never spent time around someone who's same-sex attracted and we feel, and so we're, we're uncomfortable with the whole idea. But this is where we have to remember what is true. We are all sinful creatures who struggle with sin, who are affected by the fall. We all have some inclination towards sin, and yet we're all made in the image of God and worthy of respect. In the case of fellow Christians, we're all family. I can't emphasize that enough that when God calls us to Himself, He calls us to the church, and the church is called to be the family, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. And so we might be a somewhat dysfunctional family, but because we're all safe in Christ, we should be able to freely admit our weaknesses and our failings, being hopeful that in the body of Christ we're going to find friends who will love us and encourage us and pray for us and truly partner with us as we pursue Christ together, no matter what we struggle with. There should be no one in the church who is excluded from the privilege of being full participants in the family. And so we have to take the time to listen and learn. That's the major effort that moves people from being acquaintances to being friends, that we take the time to understand each other. For example, many Christians in in recent years have approached the issue of homosexuality with a one-faceted approach. We tell them, quit being gay and you know, you weren't born that way, so just stop. But the reality is that we are born into a fallen world with fallen desires. And while we wouldn't say that God designed anyone with a particular tendency towards sin, it is possible in a fallen world that someone is born with a fallen same sex attraction that never changes. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University, where she was also a, a leading voice. And for women's and, and LGBTQ plus rights, you got to get that right. You know, it goes you know, because the, the struggles are real. And the letters are endless with the things that people struggle with. We've got we need to be sensitive to that. And so it, she was a leader in fighting for rights. And so she was entrenched as a leader in what we might call the gay rights movement until someone intervened in her life. Here's what she says. She says, When I started to read the Bible, it was to critique it. Embarking on a research project on the religious right and their hatred against queers, or at that time, people like me. She says, A neighbor and pastor, Ken Smith, became my friend. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, she goes on to tell the story of how this friendship with this pastor exposed her to the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel, eventually uprooting her life, causing her to leave her same-sex relationship and her secure career to pursue righteousness. God changed her desires and now she's happily married pastor's wife and a mother. But she points out the dangers of how we often relate to same-sex attracted people in our churches. She says that one of the mistakes that churches often make is what she calls, and I quote her here, she says, the reparative therapy heresy. This position contends a primary goal of Christianity is to resolve homosexuality through heterosexuality, thus failing to see that repentance and victory over sin are God's gifts and failing to remember that sons and daughters of the king can be full members of Christ's body and still struggle with sexual temptation. This heresy is a modern version of the prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it, pray the gay away. I would encourage you to read her story Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. The okay. name of the first book she wrote, sort of her biography source. But I'd also encourage you to read the stories of those who have unchanged attractions. Sam Alberry is an Anglican pastor and author who has written and spoken about his struggle as a celibate, same-sex attracted man. You, you can find his talks on the internet. You can get um, some of his books. He's written a, There's a small book he's written entitled, Is God Anti-Gay?, where he deals with some of these issues with how does the church approach this issue. But he also tells part of his story and his struggle there within it. Um, there are other stories you could read as well from other people. I can point you in the direction of some of those if you're interested. And I hope that we are interested. Look, I believe that reading biographies and learning about people's struggles and temptations, even if they're people that we never meet, can help us grow in compassion and mercy towards the people that we do know and will meet. And so my hope is that we would be a welcoming community. So In review, what do we communicate to those who struggle? Just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, let's let's get some things out on the table. What do we say to people who struggle with sin? Well, first, to reiterate something I've already said, temptation itself is not sin. Falling into temptation and embracing sin is sin. Temptation itself is not sin. The other thing that we can note is that no one is condemned for their feelings and temptations for their attractions. That in itself does not bring condemnation. Sin brings condemnation. Desiring sin and stressing and struggling with sin and temptation does not bring condemnation. The third thing, we are all, no matter what we struggle with, free to go to God with our struggles and with our feelings and with our attractions and with our temptations and seek help. And then just like all sinners, we strugglers need to commit to walking in holiness and asking God to give us a desire for purity and righteousness. So no matter what we struggle with, we should be going to God and saying, God, help me desire purity and righteousness. Help me desire Jesus and holiness more than I desire the sin that I'm so attracted to. That should be a regular occurrence in the life of a Christian. Go into the throne of grace and seek mercy and help in our time of need. And then, I think the last thing I would say, uh, well maybe not, not the last thing. The next thing I would say is, whatever you are struggling with, you need to ask a friend or friends to pray with you and for you. We're a community, that's what we do. What we should do, let's not be in this alone. Let's go to those around us and say, hey, help me. And when that happens, let's help. And then finally, I say this in faith, to, to those who are struggling, you are safe here. I want you to be safe here. Our desire is that you be safe here. Were we all human? we all and Were we all, we all sinned against each other? Yes. If that's fine, confess it. You can get angry for a little bit. Move on to someone else. Don't bail. Let's be a safe place, guys. When people come to us and say, I'm struggling with this, let's don't go, oh my God, I can't believe you're struggling with that. No, let's back up and say, I struggle too. Can we struggle together? Let's do this together. We all struggle with sin. None of our desires are pure. We all need a Savior. We don't just need Him before we come to faith in Christ. We need Him right now, right here, today, in this very moment, in church, with all of our righteous faces on. We need a Savior We need him to rescue us from our own desires, from our pursuit of the foolish desires of our hearts. We need his rescue. You know, we're tempted to fill our lives with anything and everything under the sun other than Jesus. My hope for us, my prayer for us, I suppose, is that God would graciously draw us to himself, reveal his glory to us in such a way that we would turn from our selfish and sinful desires to find that our greatest pleasure is in him alone. That's a supernatural work. We need to be pleading with him to give us that, that grace. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us hope that we can all be saved from our sinful desires. The scripture's clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no clause exempting people with really bad sins from finding grace. It is for those really bad sins. It's for all of us. There's hope in Jesus. All who are saved are comforted by the scripture we've looked at today. If you trust in Christ alone to rescue you from sin and temptation, you can be assured that this promise is for you. I want you to listen. Everybody look at me. Listen. I don't know what you're all struggling with. I don't know where you failed this week or where you triumphed. I don't know where you let Jesus down in your life. But here's what I know. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now, right now, in this moment, in this very moment, no matter what you've been through, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? I struggle to get that sometimes. I struggle. The gospel sometimes is hard to believe. Is it really that good? Is it really powerful enough to cover my sins? The gospel, the scripture assures us that his grace is sufficient for us. That's worth celebrating, guys. That's the beauty of the gospel. And it's hope not just for us, but to all who would believe. And so we go and proclaim The hope of the gospel to all those around us and to those who come and struggle, all of us, it's still good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you help us to love the gospel Because you have loved us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, even while we were still sinners. And not only would you help us to love the gospel and to love Jesus, would you help us to love our neighbor? Be it our Christian neighbor who struggles like we do, or our non-Christian neighbor who doesn't know there is a struggle. Would you help us to love and serve everyone around us? But also give us the courage to speak the truth in love to lovingly warn those who are living in sin that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way is death. God, would you also help us to preach the gospel to those who are seeking faithfulness, to remind them that in their time of need, Christ is with them, that in our time of need, the gospel is still true, that in our time of need, His grace is sufficient, that in our time of need, the Spirit is at work within us. He lives within us and is for us and for our salvation and for our holiness and for our righteousness. And so God, would you give us the courage to walk in righteousness, to say yes to righteousness and say no to sinful desires that you might be glorified, that we might be found faithful. Thank you for Jesus. For you love the world so much that you sent your only Son to die for our sins. Thank you for being our God. Help us to live lives that are worthy of being your people. Loving each other well, and then loving our neighbors, we love ourselves, to the ends that all the world might hear the gospel and might come running to you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus through whom it comes. It's in his name we pray, amen.